It really, truly is a pleasure to be here with all of you, and uh, really thank you for taking the time. I hope I have enough to say to make your hour worthwhile. Uh, and I really would encourage you to ask questions and get engaged if you want, as much as you'd like. Uh, so I have been a practicing lawyer for 40 years. I graduated in 1976, and I'll tell you a little bit about my background. But by way of background, Kevin asked me to sort of talk to you about, you know, how to sort of have it all. And, and I know we all struggle as professionals with work-life balance. And you sort of think of life and, you know, being taking sort of a retrospective look at my career and the path that I took. You know, you sort of see success on one hand and happiness on another hand, and you think, well, how does that merge together? How do I ensure in my professional life that I can have it all, that I can have it both ways? And I'm sure all of you know people who either, one, struggle with the conflict between those two things, who, you know, have great success but seem unhappy in their personal life, and the other way around, people who seem to have it all. And you think to yourself, how do they do that? You know, how is it possible to ensure that you have a decent personal life? You can form loving relationships. You can have other things in your life. And that's a struggle that you're all going to face. And it's not an easy one. I'm not going to tell you it's easy because it is it's something you've got to master. But I'm going to share with you some things that I learned in practicing law for 40 years and being a leader in a law firm. I was in law firm management, big law firm management for 20 years. Things that I saw and observed and some personal observations from my own life. So I don't have to tell you that it's time to be anxious, right? You probably recognize that you're about to embark on the next phase of your life, right? So this is something that you get anxious about. It's, it's normal. It's natural to be anxious about taking that step. And even if you worked in a who here has clerked or worked as a summer associate in a law firm already? Okay, now keep your hands up if you believe that your experience as a working associate is going to be exactly the same as your experience as a summer associate. Thank God. Okay, you're all smart. All right. So, yeah, I mean, you've, you maybe put your toe in the water a little bit, right? You've tested the water. But the, the, the grind and the challenge of going in day after day after day without summer break, you know, without semester breaks, you know, it's, it's a different world that you're going to be entering into. It's different in a lot of ways, and we'll talk about some of those. There are real challenges to the next phase of your life, but they're, they're, they're challenges you can learn to cope with. And you can develop mechanisms to, to arm yourself so that you ensure that you are doing things that make you satisfied and happy and successful, but also maintain some happy balance in your life. And hopefully I can talk to you a little, talk to you a little bit about that and my journey, right? So... so what I put up there is the world you have known and mastered is going to disappear. And by that, I mean you guys are the creme de la creme of law students, right? You're in an excellent institution. You're doing well. You're going to phase out of a segment of your life where you sort of know what's coming all the time, right? You know there's a cycle of testing. You all have high IQs. The whole system is rigged in your favor, and you've got it mastered. You know exactly what to expect. And it's a great part of your life. Love it up, because it's going to end, right? <laughs> that, that feeling that you sort of got control of things and that you could 
you know, you know, you know what the metrics are that you're measured by, right? Huge thing, right? We have test scores. We have SAT tests. Everything is designed to sort of put us in a line and sort of make the world logical. You're in a cycle that has sort of a, 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 a symmetry and a logic to it in terms of your life. You go to school. You study. You take tests. You know exactly what to expect. You know how you're measured. And you've mastered this. You've got it down pat. Next thing you know, you're in a different world, right? Totally, totally different world. And that's where you're headed. So the system in which you have excelled, the system you have mastered, is going to disappear. That's just a hard fact. You're not going to be in a situation in a law school like this where you have concierge service all the time. People aren't going to be worried about making you happy, right? I mean, what, what it's going to be about is you making other people happy or at least satisfying other people's requirements. The risks and rewards change, right? There's a lot more risk in the world you're going. Sure, there's risk of flunking out of school, but you sort of, at this point in your life, this part of your career as a student, you've sort of, you've got that licked. You don't have to worry about that anymore. But there's other risk when you go into a law firm. There's a risk you make somebody unhappy. There's a risk you get a lousy boss. There's a risk you're with temperamental partner, you know, or a judge that's unreasonable, or the other side that tries to get you in trouble. There's lots of risk you face that you don't face in a law school environment that really aren't risks that you can control. And sort of let me leave you with one sort of thought in the beginning of this, and that is reflect on understand and accept the things in your career that you can't control. And we'll talk about that a little more later. There are a lot of them. And sort of getting past that is really an important part of an acceptance of your new role, is understanding you can't control things the way you controlled them in school. You just can't. There's things in your law firm practice, and I practiced for the, in the government for 10 years. So I had 10 years at the federal government as a prosecutor, 31 years at Morgan Lewis. I have both sides covered, right? I was the government high-level position with the government. I'll talk a little bit about that. There's certain things about that you can't control. The level of unpredictable unpredictability will increase exponentially in your life. The symmetry and cycle of academic life is going to disappear. Um, and, you know, you're in a hothouse environment, and uh, it's going to be different. You're going to have unreasonable deadlines. You're going to have judges, if you're a litigator like I was for 31 years, who make you crazy. Who Sometimes who hometown you. You know, you'll be in situations that you're really uncomfortable in. There'll be new challenges. You'll be in rating systems that seem very opaque to you. Sometimes people say, if, you're, if they're cynical, they're designed to be opaque to you, right? And, and so you're, you're, you're competing and being rated in, such, in systems that you don't completely understand. The feedback you get will not be as straightforward, won't be as metrical as the feedback you get when you're in law school or when you're a student. So that's one piece of it, is this idea of where do I stand, right, and sort of obsessing about that. Um, then, of course, as I wrote here, judges, partners, clients. When I was a managing partner at Morgan Lewis, I woke up every single morning at 6 a.m. I went to my email, and I want you to guess how many emails I had that came in from around the globe while I was sleeping for six hours. Guess wouldn't be unusual, 500, 600 emails that I would get in the morning, first thing in the morning. I'd spend the entire train ride into work answering emails that were triaging, you know, the, the crisis and the emergencies. That was my life. And a lot of it felt, you could feel, easily feel, that you have no control over that life, that it's sort of a life run amok. And how do you keep the balance and symmetry in your own life? Talk about that. And as I said, no semester breaks, all the things that allow us to recharge our batteries. 
So what counts in this new world? How will you be measured? How do you succeed? How do you maintain equilibrium between the demands of a very, very demanding career and a meaningful private life? Can you be happy? So let me tell you my personal story. So when I joined Morgan Lewis 31 years ago, um, I was with the government. My father owned a private business. And when I left law school, my father was intent that I go to private practice. And I was a child of the 60s, and I was just as intent that I didn't want to do that. I wasn't about making money. I was going to help people. So I explored some of my options, and I took a job with the U.S. Department of Labor Office of the Solicitor. And I became a counsel, OSHA counsel. And I prosecuted employers around the country for violating the Occupational Safety and Health Act of the country. They were fairly new statutes at the time, so it was a very, very exciting time. The, the occupational health part of the statute was just triggering. The agency was now regulating people's exposure to toxins in the workplace. There were pregnant women that were at risk. There were workers who were exposed to asbestos. There were workers exposed to lead. And these levels in those days were very, very high. It was an unregulated area. And what an exciting time it was for me. I was a hotshot kid. And I was out trying cases when I was 27, 28 years old. I had the largest OSHA case in the country with another person, another lawyer and I at the time in the 1970s. It was against the Newport News Shipyard. It was the first wall-to-wall inspection that OSHA did. It was the first inspection that resulted in penalties of over a million dollars. Big case, lasted two years. And I became, I thought, pretty adept at managing large volumes of data. And this is before everybody had laptops. It was a different world, right? So became pretty good at that. I decided on a whim, you know, maybe it was time for me to think about a change. For me to move up to the government, I had to move to Washington. My family wasn't happy about that. So thought about it a little bit, explored some possibilities in D.C. Happened to mention to one of my opponents at Morgan Lewis that I was thinking about leaving my job. He said, you know what? They may be looking for somebody just like you right now. Send over a resume. I went over to the typewriter. In those days we had typewriters, you know, and little balls that would go like this. And IBM typed up my resume, shot it over to the messenger, sent it over to the office of Morgan Lewis. Got a call next day, come in for an interview. Went in for an interview, so what do I got to lose? I go in, I've been practicing law for nine years. I had 25 lawyers, I was regional counsel by then, 25 lawyers reporting to me. I had 17,000 cases that I was responsible for in Region 3, which was one of the largest regions of Philadelphia. It was Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Virginia, this area, actually two, was included in my region. Um, and there I was, starting afresh someplace else. They started asking me questions. And what they proposed to me was a different kind of job. We don't have any partnership track associate positions open, but we want to hire a staff attorney. And would you come in to be a staff attorney and work on this certain type of litigation? Well, about it for a minute. I said, well, what guarantee do I have? So they said, well, two things. One, we'll match your salary. All right. I was making $48,000 a year. They gave me $50,000. Imagine that. That's a lot of money then. I said, sure, okay, match my salary. What's the next thing? We guarantee you'll have a job for six months. I said, six months? I've got two children at home. My wife's in school getting her master's degree. I mean, that's not a lot of guarantee. No, no, don't worry. We also promise you that if this litigation goes away that you're working on, we promise you that we'll do our best to get you another job. So what do I have to lose? My future. My pension. (laughs) (laughs) Having these images of my wife and my children and I sort of leaving the house as they foreclosed on the mortgage. So anyway, so I I took the job. 
And my wife said, I took the job on the spot, on the phone. My wife said, I've never seen you in, in the, all the years I've known you. We've been married even that many years. I'm married now 44 years almost. She said, I've never seen you make a decision about something that important that fast. And I said to myself, well, you know what? If I'm going to do something, this is the best law firm in town. I'm just going to do it. Take, roll the dice, take a risk. So off I went. And for six months, I just worked my butt off day after day. So that's just part of the story. The part I wanted to tell you was what happened after that. What was the defining moment in the next part of my career? And that is my experience in a place called Enterprise, Alabama. Have any of you ever been to Enterprise, Alabama? We have any Alabamas in Have you? I've been there. I'm not from there. So Enterprise, Alabama. Who knows what the statue in the middle of the town of Enterprise, Alabama is. Who can guess? The Bull Weevil. The Bull Weevil. <laughs> gets a car, car for Starbucks. Actually, the Bull Weevil. Why? Because the Bull Weevil was what convinced people in the South at the time to stop planting cotton, that they had to vary the crops. So they have a statue to the Bull Weevil in the most the ugliest bug you've ever seen. It's huge, right? So I was working on this litigation. This was in the early 90s. I had taken the job. And in two years, I was an equity partner at Morgan Lewis. It's pretty cool, right? And uh, I was leading teams, leading trial teams, because I had a lot of trial experience when I was with the government. Down, called down Enterprise Alabama, the largest client of the firm, the serial litigation that Kevin worked on as well, at one time as one of my associates, had a trial. In those days, we were National Coordinating Council, National Trial Council. As National Coordinating Council, some of us were the teams that prepped the cases, and other teams were the trial counsel. I was one of the trial lawyers with down to try the case. I go down, this is a true story, I go down on a Sunday night, the night before we're supposed to pick a jury in Enterprise, Alabama. I show up for dinner with my local counsel, who I knew, his name was, last name was Herring, his nickname was Fish. I'm not exaggerating, Fish Herring. Sits down to dinner, he says, you know, I'm surprised to see you all here. I have my team around, and I said, what's going on? He said, oh, the judge issued an order this afternoon, didn't you get it? I said, no, I've been in transit from Philadelphia down here, I didn't get it, we've worked to prep the case all week, but no, I didn't get the order. Hands me the order. Because no answer was filed in this case, all your defenses are struck. The trial will be on damages only. That was what basically. Uh, what's this about? Hurry back to the file. Those days we have paper files. Look through the file. I didn't prepare the case. I just prepared it for trial. I hadn't actually worked on the procedural part. We had filed properly a motion to dismiss the complaint in the case back when the case was filed three years earlier. That motion to dismiss was never ruled on. In Pennsylvania, the rule is, if you file a motion to dismiss and it's not ruled on, you don't have to file an answer. Nobody filed an answer. There was no answer ever filed. And here we were. Here I was. The night before, the biggest client of the firm, huge liability, millions of dollars at risk, and here I was, 34 years old, brand new partner, 35 years old, whatever I was, and I thought, what do I do? Go back to my hotel room, it was $23 a night hotel room, I remember it well, sat on the bed and called the senior partner, the guy my age, the old white guy at home, right? <laughs> so call the guy and I said, you know, this found out, a little sheepishly, what's my fault? But he stopped, he paused, probably not what I would have done. And you know what he said to me? He said, you're there, I'm not, I trust whatever you do, good luck. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> You're there. I'm not. I trust your judgment. Whatever you do is fine. Good luck. Thank you. Boom. 
I suspect it was a dinner party or a restaurant or doing something I wasn't doing. I was, you know, about to get my head handed to me. So I thought, okay, think about the moment in life, like, you know, you're in a car accident, God forbid, and you see your life flashing, I see my entire career flashing, right? A brand new partner, partner maybe a year, two years. I work like hell. I've been building gazillion hours. I'm working my butt off. I've got family at home. My wife is out of graduate school by then, but, you know, she's just getting started with a new job. I thought, here, I'm going to get fired. Right? I'm going to go to the court tomorrow, and liability is going to be decided. The only thing is going to be decided is damages. And I had a moment, an epiphany, that moment. And I'll talk about what that epiphany is, what they call it now in psychology. But I remember sitting down and thinking, you know what, buddy? It's on you now. Right? Nobody's going to tell you what to do. Nobody really is going to suggest what the out is. But you know what? You've got to figure something out. People are counting on you. You have a duty to your client. There's got to be a way out of this. I don't know what the way is. I didn't. I didn't know what the answer was. But I knew what my duty was. And my duty was to get my smart team around me, right? And we had a meeting in one of the crazy war rooms we had set up. And I said, okay, brainstorm. What do we do? And we start kicking around ideas. Well, you know, in some states, let's do some research on that. And I thought to myself, well, something else. You know what? If this guy's wrong, I may be able to get a mandamus petition. Get somebody on the phone in Birmingham, Alabama. Find out who the, who the best um, appellate lawyers in Birmingham. So people start rushing out, start making phone calls, and come back. This is Sunday night. They find somebody. The local counsel, Mr. Hurry, found, did one thing right. He found a, some, one of his buddies from law school in Birmingham. We told him the story. He said, you know what? Get me papers tomorrow morning. Well, I'll go to the Supreme Court first thing in the morning of Alabama, and we'll file a petition for mandamus. So God and I got a group together, and we had two teams. I said, team number one, you do the research, figure out what the mandamus rules are, figure out what the procedure rules are, let's get a brief together, let's write a brief, you know, get, I was working on that. At the same time, we have to pick a jury, we've got to figure out what we're going to say to the judge, all this other stuff. And so my moment was, what was my moment? My moment was to be... I didn't have the answers. I wasn't any smarter than anybody there. But I just took charge. I had no choice. But I took charge. And you know what happened the next day? I went in to the court, and we went through the charade of picking a jury, and I was the lead counsel. And I have to tell you, this was a room this big, and we had war dire, which they call it down there, voir right? And I'm standing at the front, and the judge has the local counsel for the other side, and me on this side, and he says, now, um, Here's Mr. Lee. Any of y'all know Mr. Lee? Every hand in the place goes up. He did my divorce. He handled my workers' comp papers. He did. Of course, everybody knew Mr. Lee. Said now, from uh, Philadelphia, here's Mr. Pagliario. Anybody know him? <laughs> Dead silence. So, go through the trade. We pick a jury. We go for lunch break. We go back to the crazy cheap hotel, motel. I'll never forget this. I get a call, no cell phones then, get a call on the hotel front line, get to the phone immediately. It's Birmingham, Alabama, the appellate court uh, guy, the expert, the Supreme Court granted a stay. Yes! <laughs> Case stayed. We literally, the team goes out on the lawn and dances on the lawn. Right? <laughs> and, you know, success. Success born out of what could have been a disaster because I could have. When I had that phone call, I could have gone two ways. I could have felt, what, totally abandoned, right? I was being left on my own. Here's a young guy, the youngest partner in the firm, firm's biggest client. It's like, okay, it's your problem. 
click. And I could have felt resentful. And I could have felt abandoned. Instead, I decided to empower myself. I thought, well, you're going to put me in charge? God darn, I'm going to take charge. Right? And I did it. And guess what? Sometimes it works. <laughs> Not all the time. Sometimes it works. Right? Nothing succeeds like success. So that's my story. And, and what I've learned later, I've got to get this right. So what the psychologists call that now is grit. Right? And, and they've done studies about grit. And so when you think about your success as a lawyer and happiness, one of the things that gives you happiness is success, right? And the way to guarantee success is grit. And there's work that's been done, groundbreaking research that's been done by a woman. Look her up. Look up her TED Talks thing. It's really good. Her name is uh, Duckworth, Angela Duckworth. She's a psychology professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And she says, work ethic, motivation, dedication, Drive, determination, all things I looked for when I was hiring association associates or picking my teams. Now that's what they call grit. That's a better determiner of success in the world than your IQ. Think about that. It's a better and in fact, in some instances, high IQs are counterintuitive for grit. Grit is what matters. Digging in, being determined, being focused. That's a determiner of success in the world. And that's, um, it's a proven fact. And what I realized is struggling makes you smarter, right? A struggle and a conquering of something. Not accepting failure is important. Saying failure isn't an option for me. I've got to figure a way to do it. And that is going to be a challenge you're going to face every day. Because every day in your new job, guess what? You're going to be doing something new. And it's going to last a long time. It's going to be a year, maybe 18 months. I know it because I've seen class after class come through law firms for 30 years as a law firm manager. 18 months, sometimes two years to get to be the associate that everybody loves. And what's the best determiner of success in a law firm? Being that golden associate who can generate high-quality legal work efficiently, right? High-quality work and efficiency. Those are the two things that are... And to be able to generate, that's what Mr... Donovan did outstandingly as a young associate, I can tell you from experience, be able to generate a large mass of high quality work and do it officially. That and and to and to get to that point, it takes time. You can't be frustrated the first time you make a mistake. You can't be frustrated the first time, you know, you get a procedural thing wrong. You've got to stick with it. That's part of it. Focus. So one thing I'll say about your generation, I admire much about your generation. I love your mastery of technology. I love your willingness to try things. I think you have an amazing uh, resilience um, in, in your generation and ability to sort of do a lot of different things. What I don't like is the multitasking, right? I think it's inimical to outstanding work in a law firm and you all think you do it better than you do because you're doing it all the time you're constantly being told and reinforced with the idea that you could do three things at one time you never focus on one thing in fact you are all focusing on me most of you which is great when i give speeches in my law firm i would embarrass anyone who had a who had their um blackberry or their cell phone underneath the desk answering email so everybody thinks they could do it you know what? your clients deserve better you deserve better, right? And, and don't cheat yourself by thinking you can do it better than you can because you can't. Think about our, our 
our profession. I'll talk about this in a few minutes. We are the last of the master guilds, medieval master guilds. It's still a guild system in law firms, right? You have the master, you have the journeyman, and you have the, the novice, the apprentice. And that's the system that is still, an, is still extant in most law firms. Think about, I'm an art history buff and I'm an art history obsessor. And, and th- think about people putting gold leaf on the background of a Renaissance painting or a medieval painting. Think about Bellini putting gold leaf around the halos. Have you ever watched anybody work with gold leaf? It is whisper thin, right? You blow on it and it disappears. It crumbles up. The patience and the dedication and the focus that it takes to apply that gold leaf and make it stick and make it beautiful, is a, it becomes a work of art. Your work is no different. And your inability to focus on it at one time, I go by associate's office, I can't tell you how many times, they have three screens up. They're not, they don't have three work screens up. They've got their Facebook page up. They've got, you know, uh, uh, la up. They're doing shopping. And then maybe, if I'm lucky, I'll see some work product on the third screen, right? And they got their cell phones going, right? And iPads now. So there's like five, thing, five devices, and they're on the phone, right? No, right? Clients are paying for your time. What you do has consequences. What you do has financial, economic consequences to clients. It's cheating them to not give them your attention. Now, I'll tell you, when they know when you're not doing it. My, how many of your spouses or significant others or whatever, friends even, say, you're not paying attention, you're on the computer, right? They hear the clicking, right? Clients are not stupid. They know too. So dangers of multitasking. And it really does, it makes a difference. So master your craft. So I said you're entering the last of the medieval guild systems. Um, but I'm going to leave you with another thought to put this in your mind. Um, and I would say this to all the brand new associates. I gave a speech like this to all the brand new lawyers at Morgan Lewis every year for 10 years. And, and that is this. Um, look down in your hand, right? Hold your hands like this. Um, you, you, your career is your career, right? It belongs to you. It is your lifeblood. It is your profession that you have chosen. It's a calling. It's the way you earn your living. It's the way you feed your families. It's what keeps the roof over your head. But it belongs to you. It's nobody else's responsibility. It's not the guy upstairs. It's not the partner down the hall. It's not even the client. You own your career. Take ownership of it. So many associates don't. I've seen associates get into ethical problems because they're told to do something and they do it without thinking of it because somebody up the food chain told them to do it. And I would not scream at them, but suggest politely. Bad idea. You're not a mini lawyer. You're not a half a lawyer. You're a lawyer. You take the oath, you pay the fee, you take the bar exam, you pass, you're a real lawyer. <laughs> career is your career. Take charge of it. That ownership of your own career is important. You, and and it's important because the next line up there, which you probably can't read because it's too small, is um, don't obsess over the wrong things. I mentioned this before. So things you can't control in your career, don't obsess over it. So what are the things you can't control over here? There's an economic system in law firms. What's that economic system? Who can tell me what that economic system is? How does it operate? Come on. You're all smart. Yes. The billable hour system? Yes, come on! So what's at the bottom of the billable hour system? How do law firms make profit? Charging clients for the lawyer's time. And how do they make the most profit in the world? To work you as hard as they can work you, right? 
That is a fact of life. Now, you could start your life in a law firm thinking, I reject that. <laughs> That's not working for me. Right? And of course, it's meant to oppress you. It's designed to oppress you. <laughs> Accept it. Right? Accept it. Right? It, it, it is what it is. You can't control it. You can control your own behaviors. You can control your own investment of time. Lots of things you have control over. So that's one thing. Second obsession. Don't obsess over hours. Right? The worst thing in the world as a managing partner, when I would look down at the end of the year, we would get bonus out, and there would be a bonus catcher, you know, for people that had over 2,000 hours. And I would look down and say, you know what made me mad? Not the people that built 1950. Not the people that built 1900. That never made me mad. You know the people that made me mad? Guess. People that built You. People that built 2004. <laughs> 2002. Does you know what that was saying to me? You're gaming the system, right? You're keeping such a count on every hour you put in. You're obsessing over that time thing. You're not letting go and doing what you can to master your craft and to be as good as you can and to be as good a lawyer as you can. What you're doing is obsessing over the time commitment. You know, that's, just, that's a wrong message. It's the wrong message, right? The, the right message is, I want to be the best damn lawyer I can. I'm going to do what I can to be the best damn lawyer I can. Because why? It's your career. You be the best lawyer you can because it's your career. You're not, you're not doing it for the partner down the hall. You're not doing it for the guy upstairs in the big suite. You're, not even, you're doing it for yourself because you own that career. And you owe it to yourself to make the most of it. The more you're obsessed about us, the third thing people obsess about, guess what? Guess. What do you obsess with here? So especially when you have to be fifth year, fifth year, sixth year. What do you obsess about? Yeah! Where do I stand? A partnership drive. Oh, it's like a lottery, right? Everybody has a card. Where am I stand? You know, am I up? Am I stock up? Am I stock down? And I'd see people, you know, wringing their hands and coming to my office and, what's going on? And where do I stand? I don't get feedback. And I'd say, stop! Right? And, you know, do this for yourself. Right? Be because maybe you won't stay there forever. It's not the end of the world. Maybe you want to stay there and you put your guts and your heart and soul into it. But the important thing is to be the best lawyer you can be. If you focus on being the best lawyer you can be, if you focus on people forming relationships with people that can help you be the best lawyer you can be, I never, I swear to God, when I was an associate, I was an associate two years, it wasn't long, but two years. When I was an associate those two years, I swear to you, I never looked at my hours. Not once. I just worked. I, there were things I had to do. I did them, and I didn't think about it. I didn't obsess over it, but I got the bonus, I got the bonus, I didn't care. What I was measuring myself against was myself. Was I performing to a level that I thought was appropriate? Was I giving my clients what I thought they deserved? Was I being a success in terms of delivering and, and delivering results, delivering high quality work product? That was what I measured myself on. The rest of it sort of took care of itself, including the partnership part. You know? And you may say, okay, Pagliaro, things are different now than they were in 19, you know, whenever you graduated, back when the dinosaurs were rolling here, ruling the earth. But but it's not that different. I mean, it's not that different. People that are focused on being the best lawyers they can be. The other thing people obsess about is, who am I working with? The firm politics. Who's up, who's down? When we were young, you, this is before your time, in the Soviet era, right? All the Western journalists would look and see on May Day, who was sitting in the box with the, uh, the chief secretary of the Communist Party? Who was up and who was down? And that's the way you feel when you're associate. You're sort of looking up the partners. You're, it's a little, you're seeing through a glass darkly. It's a little opaque to you. 
Um, don't worry about it. You know, you know what, what I would say to people is, look at the people who are doing well. Look at the people who you want to emulate in terms of their success. Look at the people you can learn from. They're the people that you should gravitate towards. You know, we have these systems in law firms, and I was not a fan of this. Uh, your generation. We want, um, we want role models. Uh, we want, um, what's the other word, uh, you know, uh, assigned? Uh, mentors. Mentors, yes, mentors. So I would say when a law firm assigns a mentor, it reminds me of my mother telling me I had to play with my cousins, right? <laughs> I sort of did it, but I really wasn't crazy about it, right? Um, you know, you gravitate, think, think of law firms as the, the old Roman Senate. I mean, the senators would wake up in the morning, put on their togas, and their patrons would be out in the, in the yard waiting for them. And, and that's the way law firms are. You know, lawyer, lawyers and partners in law firms, um, you may obsess over rates, rating systems, and you may re obsess over your grades and things like that and how you rate in your system. What, what law firms understand and what gets rewarded is one thing, loyalty. Every partner in a law firm understands loyalty, right? Something to take home with you tonight and think about. No matter what your grade is, people repay loyalty. And when you put yourself with somebody and put yourself out for somebody and tie your chariot to that person and really you know, say, I'm learning from you, I'm getting something valuable from you, you will see so much more because the law firm business is a relationship business. And the more you foster those relationships and the more you engender those relationships and, and, and go outside your comfort zone, so it would tick me off. I talked to the Summer Associates of Morgan Lewis for 15 years, and every summer I'd say, the end of the summer, I'd say, you made one mistake this summer, all of you. And they'd say, what's that? All they did all summer long, when they weren't forced to go out with somebody, was stick together. They clumped together the entire summer. Why? Because if you're 23, it's more comfortable hanging out with 23-year-olds, right? You don't want to seek out the 50-year-olds and the 60-year-olds. It's intimidating to you. Or, you know, someone said to me when I first started at Morgan Lewis, just because they're old and ugly doesn't mean they're important. But it often does. <laughs> but, but my point is this. Get outside your comfort zone. Get outside your offices. You'll all use email way too much. You know, the woman that really got the most out of my tutelage was a woman who, and Kevin knows her well, would come to my door at night and say, why are you here? What you working on? And I'd say, oh, I got this. Let me help you. You know, she was sort of there. Now... I would have somebody two doors down from where I'm sitting in the corner office of Morgan Lewis email me and ask me a question by email. And I'd, and I'd go out the door and I'd say, come down and ask the question, right? <laughs> Walk down the hall, engage, right? Clients, the same thing, they get, on a, they get on the email with clients, back and forth and back and forth. Pick up the phone, right? That's how you form relationships, phone conversations, that phone still works. Then you find out, hey, you have a child. What school is your child in? Oh, my kids go to the same school. Or really, your spouse does that? Well, my spouse does this too. Those, that, that, that stickiness with clients is what makes some lawyers really, really successful you know, client developers. And why is that? Because they know how to reach out. They come outside their comfort zone. Comfort zone. They mix with other people, mingle with other people. All really important. I'm way ahead of myself. So the law firm's relationship is, we already did that. Oh, I went, I tell you the role model story. So who knows, um, what the hell is his name? Um, he's, he's one of the British comedians. And I think he took this from Shipak Takur, uh, one of the rap singers. Mm -hmm. and, and they talked about being a role model. 
and he said, let me tell you about a role model. He said, um, playing a role, making a model. Role, model, they're both fake. He said, you know, what, what matters is being authentic. And, and he had a point. And, and the, po- the point was this. Um, authentic relationships are what will make you a better lawyer. Developing a bond with people that can teach you something will make you a better lawyer. Get out of your comfort zone. Get out of your office. Learn to talk to people. Learn to learn from others because that's how you'll master your craft. Technology, I already talked about that. So, have a life outside the law. It always made me uh, scratch my head when I would see, and we had a number of couples in our firm who were husband and wife, both lawyers, both working for the same law firm. And I would see them come in in the morning, and this I was right next to the coffee the coffee bar for a long, long time, so I'd hear them. And they would come in in the morning, and they'd be actually talking about cases at like 7.30 in the morning. And I would scratch my head and I'd say, now, who wants that? <laughs> you know, now, some of you, you know, have great relationships and probably will marry other lawyers. But, but the point I'm making is that um, it, it really is important not to be all law all the time. And, and I, I don't think there's anything I would tell you that I feel more passionate about, and that is have some other interest. Uh, for me, it was art, right? So I became interested in art history, a sort of in a back, you know, back channel way. I got involved in uh, some groups and some study groups and things and met some artists and got really interested in it and decided, you know what? I'm passionately interested about this. I don't understand when I go places what makes something Baroque or what makes something else Rococo. I sort of wanted to know that intellectually. I just wanted to understand the difference. And so I started to take courses. And I went every Saturday when I was the managing partner of the entire litigation practice at Morgan Lewis every Saturday for two full years for nine hours a day and sat with the curators at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and took basically a, a master's degree in art history at the same time I was running the practice group. I was allowed to miss three, um, three sessions. One, I had a trial I had to miss. There was a partner meeting, a full partner meeting at Morgan Lewis. Fortunately, it was in Philadelphia. I was speaking at that partner's meeting as a managing partner of litigation. I literally went to the morning course, gave my speech, went back to the afternoon course. True story. Because I wanted to do it. Because it was important to me to have interest. And you know what? I've met the most fascinating people. I love all of you. You're all lawyers, but you all think the way I do, right? I became a better trial lawyer by relationships that I made, actually, at the Art Museum. I met curators. I met artists. I met people that did very different things in life than I did. And it's fun. I got out of my own comfort zone, and I became interested in a whole other area, and it enriched my life so much. I would take my kids to the museum. I started to do client events at the museum. We would do these pairings. We'd do wine tasting, and I'd take people through some of the period rooms at the art museum. I developed a, using a client development tool. The point is, I found something I really was loved, and it doesn't have to be art. It could be cooking. It could be sewing. It could be sports. It could be whatever it is, but something that you can... That, 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 that's a relief for you. That's a, a zone in your mind that you can go for comfort and for respite, right? It's your semester break that you're sort of building in. One of the things that the psychologists write about is having a garage door mentality. Anybody ever hear that garage door mentality about work? So what's a garage door mentality? So when you go home at night, when you're taking that ride home from a very busy day, and it may be 8 o'clock at night, maybe 9 o'clock at night, but as you're driving home, the garage door goes down, right? And, and when I would go home, it would be rare, maybe one night out of ten, when I would go home and complain about work to my wife. I just didn't take it home. I didn't think my kids deserved that. 
I didn't think my wife deserved that. They deserved my full attention. They deserved me focusing on them while I was in their space. And so I tried not now. It didn't work 90, you know, it worked 90% of the time. It didn't work 100% of the time. I'll admit that. There were times I was crazy. He could tell you, you know, times I was crazy. But most of the time it worked. And I talked to one of my peers who feels the same way. That idea of closing the garage door and leaving work behind, it frees your mind up. It gives you a respite. It's like a mini vacation. You go back the next morning, everything's still there. doesn't go away. Now, yeah, you can't do it every night. Sometimes you have to bring homework. But when you stop, stop it, right? Put it out of your mind, stop it. Do the things you love. Spend time with your family, your loved ones, your parents, your significant other, whatever. Your hobbies, have some other life. Not all, all, all the time. So I'm winding down. Let's see what else I have, Kevin. Lose the cynicism. So... Kevin and I had a talk about this at, uh, at lunch today, and uh, there's nothing that marks an associate for failure more clearly. You will be a marked man, a marked woman, if you are a cynic, right? Nobody likes Donnie Debbie Downer. Nobody likes that, right? People like to work with people that are upbeat. You know, he said I was humming in the halls because that's how you get picked for the team is to be a hall hummer. And maybe you're not a hall hummer by nature, right? But, but keep your sense of humor, at least. There was a guy that worked with us, we were just talking about him, who's now in house counsel, one of my clients. And uh, you know, he had a dark personality, but he was wickedly funny, right? So at least he sort of leavened the cynicism <laughs> with a little bit of humor. But, but to be the downer all the time, there's nothing that marks you for failure more easily because you know, people are always deciding in your life going forward until you're in charge of the teams, do I want this person on my team, right? And if you have a case, how many cases do we have that lasted for years? We had cases, he and I worked we together. cases that didn't last for years? Yeah, we had some last for eight years. We would be together day after day, depositions, pre-trial hearings, writing briefs together, doing all kinds of things. You don't want to be hanging around with somebody who's an energy sucker, who's taking the energy out of you. I've got lots of natural energy, but I need people to sort of build me up and be upbeat. And, and you know, you want to be surrounded by people like that. So keep that in mind. Last thing I'm going to leave you with, and you may not be a, a fan, but I happen to love Beyonce. So, who saw the Super Bowl? Probably everybody. What's the name of the song that she sang in the Super Bowl? Formation. Formation. Now, did anybody ever read the words of that song? Now, so there's some words that you may not agree with, and there's some words that may be naughty in your mind, but let's put that aside. But the core message of that music is about her and her career. And God darn, I admire that. She says, you know, I'm like Bill Gates. You may be the next Bill Gates. And then there's a great line in the song that I love. She says, I see it, I want it, I dream it, I work hard, I grind till I own it. Right? That's grit. Beyonce's got grit. I grind till I own it. And she does. You know, and she may shock people and she may turn some people off. But God darn, nobody's going to say she's not a success. And she looks happy. Doesn't she? I think she looks happy. <laughs> anyway, uh, some thoughts. Um, I wish you all well in your career. Um, I hope I add a little bit of, uh, of thoughtful uh, grist for the mill as you embark on your career. And please, if any of you... You can, you can uh, link in with me. I'm on LinkedIn. I've got you know thousands of followers. I write articles about things relating to law firms and success and other things. And I, I may take this and turn it into an article. So you may see it in some other form. So thank you all for your attention. And please, if you have any questions, shoot.